politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast here at Blaze Media. Your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here today, Wednesday, June 30th, the last day of the first half of this year. We've already gone through an entire half. And are we halfway towards our goal of restoring liberty? Certainly not, but we are making progress. There are tons of opportunities. Will we seize them in this spirit of independence as we head towards July 4th? Now, folks, we have a lot to get to um, today, tomorrow, before the July 4th break. I will do a Friday show. We might have a recorded show special for July 4th. We'll have to see. Um, Again, as always, follow us on iTunes. If the show doesn't post there because we get censored, then you could always find us at The Blaze. Folks, this is really an information warfare. Now, obviously, there's a lot of action items we need to take. My whole red state project, state legislative project, local government project, uh, basically a national divorce project. But Everything is driven by ultimately public opinion. It really is. That's the truth. Um, not necessarily that most people go along with the garbage but or, or believe in it, but they do go along with it to a certain extent, which is why information warfare is so important, which is why the other side is censoring things so much. I want to first just give you an mRNA shot <laughs> of truth, a shot of truth. Inoculate yourself from lies. And, and here it is. Just know that everything you hear on every issue, any premise made, driving a major policy, whether it's any facet of COVID, crime, illegal immigration, economy, anything, certainly global warming, things like that, it's not just that it's suspect and you have to investigate it. It is a lie. It is definitely a lie. You know, what's interesting. We now find out last night that a single Democrat primary In the New York City mayoral race, there were 135,000 fake votes that they had to fix. But don't worry, our elections are totally secure. Um, That's the thing. Everything you see is a lie. Their dishonesty knows no bounds. Major policies predicated on utter falsehoods. And nowhere are we seeing that than than with the vaccines. It's unbelievable. I myself have to go back and question some of my premises, not on this, but just on other issues, that I couldn't imagine the degree of lies, the amount of information they would know about a certain policy and just ignore it and lie about it on purpose and change the world, put people in danger based on that. So we're going to have up in a couple minutes um, a special guest, very special guest, to talk about the technology of mRNA and the concerns about the vaccine. But first, a word from today's sponsor. With all the crime going on, you some of you heard me on Mark Levin last night talking about the crime wave. Um, follow me on Twitter. I have a lot of other amazing stories on that. We have a crazy case of a judge last night letting out a career gangbanger, gun felon, arrested for a shooting. Um, fe- federal case where she said the jury pool of the grand jury didn't have enough blacks on it. 
So the point is, you are going to need to protect yourself not just with a gun, but with body armor as well. I recommend AR500 Armor, a sponsor of this show. Um, if you have a fi- firearm considering carrying, you want to protect yourself and your family, I want to implore you guys to consider purchasing body armor for my friends at AR500 Armor. Uh, shopping for body armor may seem like something new to you that you never thought about, but if you go to ar500armor.com slash Daniel, you could see they have special packages just for our show audience um, with a lot of different levels of protection. Um, also, just a bunch of cool gear there. Definitely check it out. Um, they're offering 20% off for this audience. So again, plan right now to protect yourself and your family for your future at ar500armor.com slash Daniel. Again, use promo code Daniel for 20% off of the checkout. Remember, the best time to prepare was yesterday. The second best time is today. And for all the lies that we missed in past days, it's never too late to rectify them. I mean, just how much of a lie it is. There's this um, Nova, Nova Scotia, Canada. There's this health official there that recently explained the purpose of a ban on public gatherings. Was It wasn't science-based. It was to prevent the spread of, quote, false information. That's how carefully they want to guard it. Folks, they will tell you what they're scared about. They're not scared about or from Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and these Muppet talk show hosts. They're scared of people and ideas that will really disseminate the truth. They will tell you what they're scared about. That's why they disbar Giuliani. Because that it's not so much about Giuliani. It was a message to anyone who does any legal work questioning electoral integrity there's obviously a lot to hide there and nowhere have we seen the guarded gates more secure than guarding the information flow on the vaccines even as we see clear as day just unprecedented number of problems in the modern era from really ever from a vaccine we've ever seen I want you folks to listen to this about about a minute clip from John Ioannidis, one of the most celebrated scientists on planet Earth, the most quoted scientist in publications. Very cool guy. He was one of the first ones to point out early on that the risk of death from this virus was all concentrated on a very small amount of people. Just listen to I know this is nothing new to you guys. We've said this since Ioannidis was saying this in March, April of last year, but Just listen to the way he presents the risk stratification. A major lesson that appeared fairly early in the pandemic is that COVID-19 has astonishingly strong risk stratification. If you look at the age distribution of deaths in a country like Austria, for example, we have about one-tenth of the deaths occurring in people who are less than 70 years old. The vast majority of deaths are in people who are old. If you look at the stratification of the risk of fatality for a person who is 80 years old and frail and a child that's 10 years old, we're talking about 10,000-fold or more differences in risk. 
In my life as an epidemiologist, I have been working with risk factors of 1.3. In the last decade, I have been working mostly with risk factors of 1.03 and trying to publish these papers in Nature. And many papers are published in Nature with risk factors in genetics or genomics of 1.03. Suddenly, we have risk factors of 10,000. And we don't know what to do with that. We knew what to do with risk factors of 1.03. We don't know what to do with risk factors of 10,000. That, that, that seems completely ludicrous, of course. Folks, you hear that? It just very eloquently said that, that you know, in scientific journals, it often matters in strategies and publications, a risk factor of 1.3 versus 1, or even 1.03 to 1. But yet there's a 10,000 to 1 spread between people 80 years old and people 10 years old and the government and the media continue to throw them in the same pile. We would have thought when we talked about this, one of our first narratives out of COVID last March, that by now, I mean, my gosh, that that's settled with children. And it kind of was headed in that way. Even CDC was pushing that because, you know, they couldn't shut down the schools once Biden was president, so they were moving in that direction until the vaccines came out. Now we need that market share. And kids are really the best because they can't think for themselves. They don't have control. And you brainwash them in the schools. You get schools and colleges, certainly, to say you can't go, so that destroys their whole life. What is the truth behind the development of and research of this vaccine, the trials with animals and then humans, the regulatory corners that were cut, how does it work? Now with us today to discuss this and more, the development of mRNA technology, how it applies to the vaccines, the concerns about the spike protein, the efficacy of the uh, you know, experimental vaccines, as well as the growing concerns, is none other than Dr. Robert Malone. Uh, he's an internationally recognized scientist with specialties in virology, immunology, molecular biology. He was trained in medicine at Northwest University and Harvard University and path- in pathology at UC Davis. Uh, he's really cited in many, many publications all across the medical academic literature but most importantly, he is the inventor of mRNA vaccines uh, while at Salk Institute in 1988. He was very instrumental in patenting that technology. So when I saw Dr. Malone on Tucker and then he was on uh, with my colleague Glenn Beck, I was thinking to myself, wow, what better person to bring on to explain how this works than Dr. Malone? Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me and uh, for the opportunity to to share information and knowledge with your uh, listenership. And, and those uh, venues of dissemination are really narrowing in terms of your options. Obviously, you were uh, knocked off of LinkedIn um, because you're not allowed to talk about this, which is really where I wanted to start. You know, people like myself, I'm a political guy, a kind of a legal guy, policy guy. I don't I know nothing about science and medicine. And like anyone else, you know, I, I would never think they would develop something marketed as a vaccine that would have such problems. 
So I could understand if they start saying, you can't talk about it, you can't talk about it. To me, there must be something they're hiding. So I wanted to start with just the raw basics of how this works relative to, to traditional vaccines. Um, they, you know, I see the other side, they deny it up and down. They say it's just a backhanded way of, of working like a vaccine, like anything else. I'm just going to read to you Moderna's SEC filing and get your comment on this. They say, currently mRNA is considered a gene therapy product by the FDA, unlike certain gene therapies that irreversibly alter cell DNA and could act as a source of side effects, mRNA-based medicines are designed to not irreversibly change cell DNA. However, side effects observed in gene therapy could negatively impact the perception of mRNA medicines despite the differences in mechanisms. So they swear up and down. Don't confuse this with gene therapy. But what say you, Dr. Yeah, Malone? That, no, they, they don't say that. They say that they acknowledge that it is a gene therapy but it's slightly different. That is a fascinating uh, quote you just gave me because you'll notice that it is it it predates the focus on the vaccines. So Moderna was originally a mRNA as a drug or an mRNA for therapy per, uh, purposes. And that SEC statement says nothing about the vaccine applications. And it explicitly says that the FDA considers this to be a uh, gene therapy. Now, what's fascinating about that and this gets to the core of why things have gone so sideways, is that the FDA, when it received the dossier for these things as vaccines, they elected to not apply the checklist. I'm afraid this is how things are at the FDA. There isn't a whole lot of thinking a lot of times. There's checklists, okay? So they have these checklists, and they applied the vaccines checklist, not the gene therapy checklist. And that's where a lot of this went sideways. So do you want to talk just really quickly about what is an RNA vaccine? What it is, and, and, and also if you could just explain the history a little bit, what you are developing, what it was designed for, and why possibly it's not working or problematic in the context of the COVID vaccines. So let's start with what is it. And uh, I've been working on how do you simplify this, not to talk down to people, but uh, there's there's a quote from Richard Feynman that if you can't, make a complex idea simple, you don't really understand it. So I kind of took that as a challenge. Here's, let's imagine that uh, we're talking about computers. We're talking about computers as an analog for what happens in your cells and your body. Okay, so if we take the computer as the metaphor, the hard drive is your chromosomes, your DNA. The programs that are coded into your hard drive is the sequences, the coding sequences, the information in that DNA. So DNA is a hard drive. Programs are the coding in your DNA. The things that make, imagine this, the things that make proteins in your cells, imagine those as little industrial robots that can make anything. MRNA is the thing, the message, the information, the bit streams that goes from your programs on your hard drives out to those little robots and tells them what to make. MRNA vaccines are a way, they're, they're like a hacker that, that opens up channels and inserts his own information into that bit stream so that those little robots in your cells, instead of making whatever it was they were going to make, start making vaccine protein. 
Does that make sense? That actually sounds perfectly. So rather rather than um, dangling in front of you an inert uh, viral cell that the body on its own naturally responds to, here you put an mRNA, a message to say, hey, here's what we want you to do, produce that spike protein. Did I explain it okay? You're dead on. Okay, so a traditional vaccine is usually an inactivated pathogen. Sometimes it's a weakened pathogen like yellow fever. Um, and you inject that and your body responds to it. So these are mRNA vaccines and, by the way, recombinant adenovirus vaccines are both gene therapy technology applied to vaccinology. Now you want to jump into the history a little bit, and I'll illustrate that. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so when, when is it appropriate and when is it not? Oh, well, that's a different question. When is it appropriate? So the thing about applying gene therapy technology, which means to say that we have foreign genetic material and we're using technologies that put that into your cells and turn your cells into little manufacturing factories that are making vaccine. That's the essence of it, okay? Is instead of manufacturing the actual vaccine outside of the body, putting it in a syringe together with what we call an adjuvant, something that stimulates your immune system, and shooting it into your deltoid, into your shoulder, what we're doing is we're shooting in the, the, the information that will change your, some of your cells into little vaccine manufacturing factories. When is it appropriate? Why do this, right? Um, number one, it, it makes the process of developing a vaccine, the material, the composition of matter, dead easy because the RNA chemically is, this, is within, you know, generalities, it's pretty much all the same. It's just a bunch of A's and U's and G's and C's strung together in a sequence. And they're basically negatively charged. So the technology necessary to uh, stuff that into a FedEx envelope, the nature of the FedEx envelope that delivers that into cells is pretty much the same. It doesn't matter. The manufacturing technology for making the RNA is pretty much the same. The difference is that you sit down at your computer and you say, this time I want it to uh, have this sequence for a flu protein. And that time I want to it to have the sequence for a SARS-CoV-2 protein. But chemically, it's really similar. And so the manufacturing becomes a lot more straightforward. As opposed to regular vaccines, everything is custom. So it makes it easy, makes it go fast. Um, the other thing about using gene therapy kind of technology is that when the cell expresses the proteins to your immune system, it looks a lot more like you're actually infected by the virus, for example. And the implication of that, because you're, you're actually producing a virus protein, not the whole virus, it's not infectious, you're producing a, a part of the virus that would normally stimulate an immune response against it, but viruses also produce a lot of other things that shut down the ability of your immune system to recognize those things. So you can produce the protein in your little factories without all the extra fancy stuff that the, vac that the virus uses to keep your immune system from recognizing it. What does that give you? There's two main arms of what we call the adaptive immune system as opposed to the innate immune system. And this is where I get crossed up with people that are using the terminology natural immunity. But what they mean with natural immunity is, you know, most people are talking about it now, is the immunity you get from actually getting infected by SARS-CoV-2. 
So let's park that. I'm not talking about that kind of natural immunity. Innate immunity is this more ancient immune system that we all have that goes way back to our lizard brains. And it, it has ability to recognize some general patterns that are shared by many different kind of pathogens and fight those things off. Then there's the adaptive immune system. This is the more modern part of our immune system. And it's able to actually learn from the shape and structure and composition of proteins and other antigens that are produced by a pathogen, whether it's a bug, a bacteria, I mean, or a, or a virus. So those are like the T cells. So the T cells, you said the key word, that's the cellular immune response. And it's really complicated. One of the, what we call effector T cells, the business part of T cell response are cytotoxic T cells that cruise around and they can kill cells that either have cancer mutations or have uh, are expressing um, are, are manufacturing virus instead of manufacturing vaccines. So those are the killer T cells. And the other part are the B cells that make antibodies. So antibodies is called humoral or bloodborne. It's, it's the, the nomenclature doesn't make any sense anymore. It's because of you know historic uh, immunology how it developed. But you get antibody responses basically and cytotoxic T lymphocyte responses is the you know top level idea. And so the antibodies can neutralize the virus and do stuff when it's outside of the cell. And for, I'm simplifying grossly. And the cytotoxic T lymphocytes can kill cells that are infected with the virus. You want both of those. And it's a lot easier to get both of those with this kind of gene therapy approach than it is with the more traditional vaccines. So there, that's a pretty deep dive. And that's how it works. That's why you'd want to use it. Now, when has it been used before? And why are the COVID vaccines use of the mRNA different and more concerning? The real problem is in everybody's focusing on the mRNA vaccines and their problems. But in fact, it's the genetic vaccines that are expressing spike. The problem is the protein. It's the payload. It's not the technology. People are focusing on the technology because it seems so foreign and spooky. But these recombinant viruses, DNA viruses called adenoviruses, they're kind of cold virus. Um, Mickey left nose swell, that's what I call adeno. Um, they've been engineered, and that technology has been used for years and years and years, and there are already licensed vaccines that use recombinant adenoviruses. That You take out some of the DNA of the adenovirus, and you put in a DNA copy of the virus the protein that you want to express, like, say, spike, and then you button all that up, make little adenovirus particles that don't actually replicate except in cell cultures and inject that into a patient. We call that the J&J &J vaccine or the uh, uh, Sanofi, Oxford, AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe. And they're really the same tech, but with a different platforms. The thing about the adenovirus vector, so here we would call it J&J, &J, is that that platform is made so that it expresses lots of protein for a long period of time. The RNA vaccine platform is designed so that you put the RNA in, it causes your cells to make the vaccine protein for a while, and then the RNA gets cut up. Okay, so it's a shorter term, we call it transient gene therapy or, or transient uh, RNA therapy, which is what 
um, Moderna was talking about is using RNA as a therapeutic in their prospectus that you just read. So RNA gets cut up, doesn't stick around so long, so you get a burst of protein expression, then it's gone. The adenovirus, you produce protein over a longer period of time. Now, the thing is that they're essentially all three vaccines that we have are using the same approach, and they're expressing the same proteins. That's not the only protein antigen that, that could be used, but it was kind of like the low-hanging fruit, if you forgive the metaphor, the easy thing to do, the kind of no-duh, for sure, this is going to work, and we don't have to worry about that part, and we can get on with our business. The problem is that the whole, the spike protein itself, and I've been fact-checked by our friends at Reuters who say that this is not true, but in fact, it is true. I'm going to watch my words. The native spike protein in the virus is clearly demonstrated in multiple peer-reviewed publications to cause coagulation problems, cytotoxicity, and open blood-brain barrier. Okay, that means that things can get into your brain and out of your brain that normally oh, so, so you're saying the spike protein produced by these pl- platforms, they break that blood-brain barrier. They, they could permeate that. that. No, 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 you missed the nuance of what I said. Okay? The, the native spike protein as produced in the virus does that. Ah, got it. Now, whether or not the, the spike protein that has been engineered, for instance, to be locked into the open conformation that allows it to efficiently bind ACE2, this key regulatory protein that it's its natural receptor, okay, that's what's being expressed in most of these vaccines, so it's a little different. And some claim that it is not toxic, even though the native spike from which it's derived is toxic. Here's my problem with that. I haven't ever read that paper. I haven't ever seen data demonstrating that. Right now, it's just uh, self-appointed experts yapping on Twitter. I haven't seen those data showing that that's safe. And the thing is, apparently the FDA has not forced the developers to demonstrate it. And you know, from a legal perspective, the way things work with uh, drug development is like the French judicial system. You're guilty until proven innocent. (laughs) The starting assumption is that you're toxic. And it's the job, the the requirement that the developer has to demonstrate using uh, cell culture experiments, animal experiments, anyhow, all that. Before they ever get into humans, they have to demonstrate that it's safe. Not that we have to prove that it's not safe. So what we know is that spike is toxic, and you can take that to the bank, and I can cite multiple, multiple manuscripts to that end. So, so we know the spike in, in the native virus obviously is toxic. Their idea was, hey, well, we produce that, but it won't you know, create the virus, so it will kind of work like a, like a vaccine. It will work great, but now we're seeing these side effects um, even if the absolute, even if the absolute risk, even if it is, and we still don't know, is low. And the, here's the tell in all this, okay? And and the government, in its wisdom, you know, and the governments worldwide are dug in denying that this problem exists. And there's reasons why they're dug in. So w- w- one of the ways they were dug in is they were saying that the spike protein, it stays in the shoulder muscle, and now we know it goes elsewhere. Could you describe the circulation, where it goes, for how long, and what possible concerns 
grow out of that circulation of the of the spike protein. So there's in this people are getting confused because there's this FOIAD, and I don't know if your audience understands. So Freedom of Information Act was used by some Canadian scientists to obtain the regulatory documents that Pfizer submitted to the Japanese government. Normally, you can't FOIA these things out of the U.S. government or the Canadian government. For some reason, Japan, they were able to spring it loose. And those showed the preclinical or non-clinical animal studies that Pfizer did um, looking at the, what's called the distribution of injected uh, RNA with the formulation and the uh, package part of the FedEx box, that's the lipids, and uh, where the RNA makes protein. So people get confused. There's that package of information. And then there's the information about that, as you just pointed out, the party line was, and this was published, that if you inject it into the muscle, it stays put, more or less, or it goes to the draining lymph nodes. And then along comes this uh, study from Harvard and Brigham Women's and Children's. It wasn't intended to show this, but what they did was they looked, they had a super sensitive way to look for spike protein subunit in the blood. And what they found in this study of nurses that received Moderna and then it was monitored over time, it showed that there was significant levels of free spike protein subunit in their blood. That wasn't supposed to happen. And it lasted for, you know, two weeks to a month. And it was reasonably high levels detected in most of these nurses uh, for, for this period. There's a distribution curve of how much protein and how many nurses. So it's in the blood, which means it's circulating all over the place. And it's also, that's just measuring the tip of the iceberg because there's, that means there's spike protein back in the factory cells that's still bound. Hopefully that's most of it. And then there's spike protein that's been free, but it's stuck to other stuff. What other stuff? We don't know. No one's measured it. But if it's binding to ACE2 with any kind of affinity, it could, which means stickiness, uh, it could well be that what they're measuring with free spike in the blood is just a tiny fraction because there's a bunch of it that's binding to other things in your body or is stuck to those cells that's producing it. So it's probably a significant underestimate of the total amount of protein. Does that make sense? No, that, that, that definitely does. But the question is, for how long? We're seeing most of well, the side of effects, 10, 30 days or so. Are there concerns? Well, and and there's a paper there's a paper that should be hitting the street soon. I've heard rumor of that shows that where some of this spike ends up is inside of a cell type called a macrophage. Uh, so these are are um, uh, these uh, mobile cells that move around. Uh, you may have seen something like this in some of the microbes when you looked under a microscope when you were in eighth grade or whatever. Um, so these are cells that move around in your body, and they control the whole inflammatory process. They also gobble up uh, debris and things like that. And it looks in this paper that one of the places this spike is going is it's getting stuck inside of these cells, and it's flipping them on in a weird way so that they're producing, they're basically throwing out all kinds of things that turn up inflammation. 
that turn up the dial on inflammation. We call them pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. So these migratory cells are apparently sucking up spike and spike is changing how they behave. And this may explain both long COVID and a lot of these symptoms. So that's part of what seems to be going on, but there's more than that. There's, and we first saw it with the adenovirus. That's why I tried to make the point that the ad tech and the mRNA tech are, are kissing cousins, except for the adenovirus makes a lot more protein for a longer period of time. And what happened with the adenovirus vectors? Oh, they had really big problems with blood clots. Okay. They're making more protein, longer period of time. We picked it up really early. They caused blood clots. You may remember there was a hold and then there was a kind of a hand-waving decision that, well, we're going to pull the hold because we need these vaccines and we think the risk-benefit ratio is good. But in a lot of countries, they won't touch them because they think they kill people. So now you ask the question, how much and for how long? Brilliant question. Very straightforward. FDA didn't ask it. Wow. They didn't ask the, regu- the, the developers to characterize the level, duration, and rigorously characterize the distribution of where those, those proteins are being made. They did non-good laboratory practice, so that's like what a graduate student does on the bench you know, in his, for his PhD or whatever. Not well-controlled. Um, Non-GLP studies in a limited number of animals to look at where the the protein goes, they didn't actually use the, the, what we would call the active drug substance, RNA that codes for spike. They used RNA that codes for a reporter gene, something that's easy to detect. And it just so happens the name of this reporter gene is luciferase. It has nothing to do with the devil. It's the protein that makes the firefly tails glow. And it turns out that you can use this sequence to make that protein and then you add a chemical and it makes light. And light is really easy to detect with what we call photomultiplier tubes. This is why we have satellites that can look at your uh, um, license plate on your car. Okay, so really sensitive PMTs that can detect light. And uh, it's a brilliant example of Pfizer pulling the wool over the regulators. Pfizer used the least sensitive way to detect that expression. They looked at whole animals so in that case, the light has to come from wherever the protein is being expressed, go through the muscle, go through the skin, go through the fat, go through the fur, and then hit the photomultiplier tube. And so what that means is that most of those photons get bounced somewhere else. And the only thing you see are the areas that are expressing really high levels of protein. And lo and behold, they conclude, oh, it mostly stays at the site of the injection plus some in the liver. Okay. That, that, any of us that do this for a living look at that and we laugh. That's, that's like a parter trick that we use to put on the cover of a, manus- on a, on a, of, of a journal or something like that. The way to really do this, and, you know, it goes back to, I'm sorry to say, it goes back to my pioneering studies. I was one of the first ones to use luciferase for all this stuff. Is what you really ought to do, um, close your ears for vegetarians and animal rights folks. Um, you sacrifice the animal and you carefully dissect out all the tissues and organs, you put each of those in tubes, you add some buffer, you lyse the cells, you pop the cells open, take a little sample, put it in a machine, it counts exactly how much light is given off, 
And that tells you precisely how much of that transgene protein, the luciferase protein, has been made from, say, the RNA that might have reached that organ. That's the way you do it. Okay? But Pfizer uh, didn't do that. They did the, the least sensitive method. And for some reason, the FDA and all the other world regulators said, well, that's good enough. That proves the point. Wait a and minute. I, what it shows is that the people that are overseeing this haven't got a bloody clue what they're doing. And the reason is because they had the vaccine guys and gals look at it, not the gene therapy guys and gals, because they decided in their wisdom that these are just like any other vaccine, and they clearly aren't. That's why I say they, what they should have done, and this is typical in the FDA, when you have a novel product, they'll bring in people with different expertise to review it, not just one team. And what they did in this team, in this situation, is they only had the traditional vaccine team, and they used the traditional vaccine checklist. And they said, well, you never do reproductive toxicology on vaccines, and you never do gen genotoxicity on vaccines, and you never have to, to characterize duration of expression in vaccines or levels of expression because they're just vaccines. You just, they're already pre-made and you shoot them in. And it's, you, in hindsight, you look at that, and it's patently absurd. These are gene therapy-based technologies, and they should have had the specialty group from gene therapy regulation in addition to the specialty group from vaccine regulation looking at all this stuff, but they didn't. We only have a couple minutes here, and we've already uh, we just scratched the surface. I want to get to two quick things, but I just want to summarize where we are, and, and let me know if I'm right on the right track. What, what scares me about what you're saying is that it seems like the focus shouldn't be so much on the mRNA technology in general, but what it is seeking to produce the payload that spike protein and, and that's number one and then number two you seem to be saying just to summarize the technicalities of how you would test this in the animals is that no pun intended but the 800 pound gorilla in the room aka the spike protein was not properly studied in the animal trials absolutely Absolutely. I mean, that that's really, those two elements really scare me. Want to quickly move to two, two other things connected to this. Um, lipid nanoparticles. Um, my understanding is that they're kind of like the vehicles that carry um, and, and protect the messenger RNA molecules so, from, so let's that's say. That's why I use the metaphor of the FedEx pack. Yes. And they're the cardboard part, and the RNA is the little memo that's inside. So, so we have the problems with the spike protein, the concerns about what they do to the body, the toxicity, the lipid nanoparticles. I'm seeing everyone say now, um, those that have concerns about this, that they have been proven to deposit in the ovaries. Could you explain that a little bit and what, what, what the concerns are? Okay, so where we got to be careful about is the word proven. What we have is this early data package that Pfizer used to justify putting this stuff in humans. And in it, remember, I, I was talking about that. They tracked where the RNA goes using radio-labeled, so radioactive RNA. They tracked where the lipid part goes. That's the packaging. And they tracked, um, in a very crude way, where protein is being made. We went through that. So now we're going to talk about the package part. And that package part includes things that have never really been in humans in any kind of numbers before. They're novel, novel compounds. They're ionizable 
uh, basically tertiary amine lipids that are chemically synthesized that are used to, to wrap the RNA and then other lipids that are have been used before for many things, some of them are generally regarded as safe, are, are added to that mixture. It's all done in the presence of acid ethanol, and then you move the, remove the ethanol. So that's how it happens, and it self-assembles and coats the RNA. So when they did the study, they looked at where the lipids went, and what's really striking about that study, but it's a limited non-GLP study, so we can't have it both ways. That's why I say it's not proven. But, but what was striking is that 12% of the lipids went to ovary, and they didn't concentrate in the testis. That's kind of weird. And the thing that that evokes is obviously concerns about reproductive toxicology. And even in Pfizer's own public documents, like their clinical protocols, they explicitly acknowledge that the reproductive toxicology wasn't done. These are the animal studies to test whether or not something is going to affect reproduction wow. in a rat, which is not that predictive of whether or not they're going to affect reproduction in a human. So we're kind of flying blind in terms of women's reproductive systems and whether or not this compound can affect them. Now, is there any chance of a, a compound, a chemical like this, affecting reproducting, reproduction or causing mutations in people? Well, yeah. The thing that kind of really created the modern FDA is called thalidomide. I'm not saying these are going to be like thalidomide in any way. I'm just saying that it's really important with a new compound that happens to go to a reproductive tissue to figure out whether or not there's any risk there as well as you can and to carefully monitor it. It's another part of this whole story. Everything got rushed. And they said Operation Warp Speed, they weren't going to cut any corners. They weren't going to rush things. They were just going to kind of straighten out the road. I think in retrospect, we can all agree they cut corners. And, and, and it's dangerous to, to not recognize that and to continue double down. It's, it's worse than that. They're, they're in denial. They, they're, there's now... You know, and this gets to the to the um, censorship, like me getting deleted off of LinkedIn <laughs> yesterday because I even raised these questions. They won't allow even any discussion among scientists in public forums about this. It is verboten because the belief is that it will cause people to not accept the vaccine. Now, I'm of the opinion, probably you are too, that we ought to follow. Uh, the Nuremberg Code and the Helsinki Accords yep. We've uh, talked and the a lot Belmont about that. Report and the Code of Federal Regulations and recognize that these are experimental products and, and it is in a research phase and people have rights. But even beyond that, it, it, here, at least I believe here in the States, we still have the right to make decisions about our own body. The state doesn't own our bodies. The state shouldn't be able to mandate stuff that we put into our bodies. At least that's the way I was trained. I don't know about you. And also, just just from an evidentiary standpoint, you mentioned this before, and this goes back and forth in a lot of the fact-checking and the debate and the language that people like myself might use, and this is a hyper-technical issue. But w whether it's masks or lockdowns and now the vaccines, they do extremely draconian things based on zero evidence, and then we express concerns based on educated guesses, and they're like, well, it's not 100% proven what we're saying, but yeah. Yeah, but that's our point. You got to study that before making us lab rats. 
Oh, it's it's worse. It's worse than not 100% proven. And that's why the FOIA emails from Tony Fauci are so important. Now, it's often, I'm, I'm a veteran of many outbreaks. I'm often at the tip of the spear, including in this one. And at the beginning, it's wicked hard to make decisions because you've got no information. We're well paced, past that point. But all the way through, um, and I'm going to name a name, Tony Fauci has substituted his opinion or what he believes is necessary to say for actual evidence-based medicine. And it's gotten him in trouble again and again and again, but uh, he's portrayed as a hero and he's wrapped himself in the cloak that he is science. And anybody that says anything against him is attacking science. I'm sorry. I'm, I, a case could be made in this area. I know more about the science than he does. I, whether I do or don't, I still try to live my life based on evidence, on data. That's the scientific method, not to just shoot off my mouth and say, we ought to do this, that, or the other thing, because I think it's the right thing. We call it expert opinion. And in the, in the pyramid of medical evidence, it's at the lowest level. It's proven again and again that expert opinion leads us astray. And yet we're still allowing the use of expert opinion largely by a single government leader who happens to be an octogenarian uh, to substitute for data and fact-based decision-making. It's been happening all the way through. It's still happening. For instance, there is no technical basis to be able to calculate how much uptake of vaccine is necessary to reach herd immunity. Why? Because herd immunity is a question of whether or not you're shedding, producing virus, and you have the ability to spread virus from one person to another. These vaccines have not been characterized well for their what we call transmissibility. Person that is vaccinated gets infected. Do, does, are they able to infect somebody else? We don't have the data for that. What we have are the data for disease. Does it keep you out of the hospital? Does it keep you from dying? And those are important data. And these vaccines work great at that. But WHO just said, just yesterday, made an announcement, you are going to need to use masks again because the vaccines don't fully protect you from infection or spread. Why does this matter? Because of the Delta variant that's coming on, that swept across the UK. So it drives the point home that once again, we've all been told we have to, we, you know, in some countries it's mandatory. Communities can't come out of lockdown until at least 70% of the population accepts vaccine. There's no basis for those statements. Somebody's just pulling them out of a hat. And that's, again, that's just not right. It affects people's lives. It affects their livelihood. And, and this is where the conservative uh, movement and positions staked out by many governors that are characterized as red state governors actually has merit is, is that um, we don't have the science. Somebody could have got the science to say how much vaccine uptake is necessary for a given vaccine, but they didn't. Everything they're doing, they're winging. We certainly see that. Obviously, we went over time, but just real quick um, before I let you go, uh, we need to do a separate show on the other half of the discussion, the efficacy, which you started to get into. But I do want to ask just one question as a segue from what you just said. Is the spike protein, which seems to come with risks, 
is that even the best thing to attack from a vaccination standpoint, rather than say what what I've been told is drugs like ivermectin seem to attack the RDRP enzymes or other parts of the virus? Yeah, the mechanism of action mechanism of action of ivermectin is another thing, but but yeah, this is not the only um, antigen, and it may not even be the best antigen. And the part of spike that matters is called the receptor binding domain. So the thing is that spike has a lot of different kind of biologic activities. And you could have engineered it to whack all those other activities and still leave the important things like the receptor binding domain in, in a native structure. And you, it has this virus produces a lot of different proteins that can elicit cytotoxic T lymphocytes, for example. So uh, there are many other targets. It's just that they, in the rush, went for the easiest one. They went for the low-hanging fruit, and they didn't think about the consequences of that decision in their rush to get something out the door. That's what I see. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, we've all been trained to think, oh, the spike, the spike, that's the big, that's the most important part of the virus. You attack that, it's over. You're saying that's not really proven, not necessarily true. It was more, as you explained earlier, the easiest way to expeditiously develop the vaccine. Um, And and that's fine if you have informed consent and and tell that to the public and they know and people could weigh their risk factors. Um, Thanks so much for this presentation. Very generous amount of time. I'm really looking forward to having you back again. And folks, he is on Twitter. You could follow Dr. Malone there. And I know I'm going to get a lot of questions from my audience. Very smart, very inquisitive. So I look forward to corresponding with you in the coming days. Yeah. And and let's do another one. That sounds super. And thanks for your time. And and, uh, good luck to your audience. Remember, it's your body. It's your choice. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. And folks, that was simply mesmerizing. Um, I myself am going to have to go back and just listen to some of the parts again. Obviously, very technical uh, for those of us that don't have any uh, studied knowledge from this. But the broader point that is so shocking here is this. Why is it almost exclusively conservatives like myself and Tucker had him on? Why is this even political? Yes, when it comes to mandates and legal stuff, I'm going to have a pre-existing bias and I'm going to have an opinion on it. But the stuff he was talking about, it's all new to me. I mean, genuinely, if I had a friend or anyone I knew who's even an enemy that's a liberal would come up to me and say, okay, forget about mandates, but just optionally, should I opt to take it? This is a big question. And certainly if you're... You know, if you're under 50 or so, for sure, the answer's got to be no. Um, But even over, especially when we have ivermectin and other stuff, this is a big question. And the fact that we are not getting informed consent, anyone who is smart on this is getting censored. How could a guy like that be excluded from this discussion? Right? I mean, he proved... That this is absolutely a gene therapy, and it's a gene therapy in a novel way that it produces a payload that we know to be a, a to- uh, you know it's it's toxic in the virus. Oh, well, Daniel, no, no, you're not going to get the virus from it. Okay, but are you going to get other side effects? Some of them, which might overlap with certain side effects of COVID, namely some of the blood clotting issues. 
the people who get COVID do seem to get that, you know, in the, in the real severe cases. And it's like nothing to see. And, you know, what the, the impression he, he seems to be giving off, and, I, and I've seen this, is that this is a runaway train. They don't know what to do with it. They were caught. They never thought about it. Some of them maybe knew certain things and didn't care anyway. And this is the tip of the iceberg. And they're just trying to say, no, this is not a problem. And then it's proven to be a problem. But but the next thing is not a problem. It's proven to be a problem. How deep does this go? To summarize it again, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is the spike protein. And he explained it very well. I couldn't articulate it until he explained it to me. That the reason they targeted, we all thought that's the, that's the big thing. That, that's what you want to go after. That's the head of the snake in terms of SARS-CoV-2. But no, that was the easiest way to develop a vaccine quickly. And they never did a proper trial with animals to detect how the spike protein interacts with your body how long it stays there? What does it do? What are the effects, particularly things like reproductive health for uh, the female mammals? It wasn't tested. What other corners they cut? So he didn't just toss around allegations. He actually explained bottom up how it works, why they chose it, why it's understandable why they chose it. It's also clear from this discussion, you know, a lot of people try to say, oh, the the endovirus uh, um, platforms like J&J and AstraZeneca, oh, they're, 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 they're not mRNA. That's not the point. But they're both not traditional vaccines, and they both have the same key problem of the payload being the protein. And he's saying, if anything, they might produce more protein for longer than Moderna Moderna, and, and, and Pfizer. I mean, again, I am very confident about my views on everything political. You guys know that. This is something new to all of us. But this is what they do. And now, now just extrapolate this to things that are overtly political like election law, like crime data, like illegal immigration data. Do you do you trust these people for a minute? Do you trust anything they say? And the answer should be a resounding no. Now folks, I'm going to leave it here for today. I don't want to, you know, th- introduce other information because I really want this to be self-contained. It's a very important show. Um send me your comments and questions uh that you want me to you know, correspond back with Dr. Malone, and I'll try to talk about it in the coming days. As always, I'm just here to provide information as well as a movement, but today was more of an information show because this is information warfare commensurate with the frantic, truculent almost nature of the censorship is the need for us to actually disseminate this information. It likely means that the degree of co- of the cover-up is worse than we even think. And the consequences are unimaginable. I mean, I, I would have never thought that they could produce something that they'll give to a billion or so people that could have long, and not just all the people we know died from it, a lot of people likely died from it, wasn't really reported. But what, what, what are the long-term effects? We don't know. And the onus shouldn't be on us to prove 
categorically that there's serious long-term effects to stop it, the onus is always on them to prove this is safe. And that's even to circulate and disseminate a vaccine, much less mandate it and bully people into getting it. But those of you who listen to this show that aren't traditional conservatives, maybe you were liberal on other issues, I want you to start thinking about this. Think about the people pushing this. What else are you being lied to? We're going to discuss that in the coming days as we head to July 4th. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate you guys making this one of the fastest growing shows. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. 